So as we continue on the theme of uh, holiness that we've been talking about all year, our last segment on holiness has to do with evangelism. And as you know, one of the words that the Lord has consistently given us as a church over the last three years is that we're to pay attention to the area of evangelism. And so we want to really end the year highlighting evangelism. As you know, God has really anointed that whole ministry through the prayer tent. Over a 1,000 people have stopped and gotten prayer. Uh, Amen. Amen. We just appreciate that ministry so much and God's hand on it, um, the salvations that have come through it, the rededications. And so basically the Lord is telling us, take the word outside the four walls. Amen. So that's what we're endeavoring to do this last part of the year. So one of the scriptures I want to start off with is in Genesis 1. A pastor friend of mine always taught us, if you want to know the whole Bible, all you have to do is read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because the entire Word of God is encased in those three chapters. You have God's master plan, then you had the fall of man, and then you have God's restoration of man. And so Genesis 1, 26 says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so the key word there is dominion. God has given man dominion. And if you look up the word dominion, it basically means sovereignty or sovereignty or control. And then some of the synonyms are supremacy, ascendancy, dominance, superiority, sway, power, command. So words like that to demonstrate the power and the authority that has been delegated to us as men and women of God and how God has us as part of his master plan to subdue the earth. So God's original plan for man to rule over the earth was thwarted, as you know, by the enemy, and we lost that power and that position. But in Luke chapter 19, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So there we have the message that God came to save us as men and women, and our eternity is secure because of the blood that Jesus shed for us at the cross. But more importantly, he wanted to restore our position as stewards of the earth and have dominion over the earthly realm. So as he restored that to us, he gave us this assignment, or our marching orders are found in Matthew 28, and we know that is the Great Commission. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I want to emphasize that. Go and make disciples of all nations. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How are we making disciples of all nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So how do we recover this dominion that we're supposed to have? How do we re-secure the earthly realm that we had lost through the fall of Adam? And so part of that is the restoration that Jesus brought through the cross, but more importantly, that delegated authority that he gives to us as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So the first thing that he did is he gave us a strategy for the church. This is something that we've drilled home many, many times, 
As you know, we consider ourselves a fivefold church. What do we mean by that? The fivefold ministry that is found in Ephesians 4. And it says this So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So God has given us his divine strategy to build his church. And part of it is identifying each role that we are to have. Some are called to be apostles, some teachers, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors. And as we begin to define those roles, and as we move out as a five-fold ministry, a five-fold church, and we understand what our call is to that, the reason we have that is to mature the church. So what happens once the church is mature? Is our work done? No. We have to go outside these four walls and begin to use those gifts and that maturity to begin to convert the world and take dominance over the world. So this whole fivefold ministry isn't just for the sake of maturing the church. It's for the sake of maturing the church so that we become an equipping center, so that we become a leadership school to teach you the principles of the kingdom to then go in turn and impart those principles to the world. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of the world schooling us. I think it's high time that we as a church begin to school the world. Amen? I'm so sick and tired of going into church meetings to learn the latest business principles that people have learned in the business realm. I want the church to go into the business realm and say, this is how we do it in the church, and they begin to copy us. Amen? So part of that that we're going to talk about is this strategy, this mandate um, called the Seven Mountain Mandate. So it's a divine strategy that was given to these two men. The origins of it is Pastor Bill Bright from Campus Crusades Ministry, and Lauren Cunningham, who is the founder of YWAM, Youth with a Mission. So these two leaders, kingdom leaders, very well-respected leaders, were going to have lunch one day, and on their way to the lunch meeting, both men got a download from the Lord, and the Lord says, here's a strategy I want you to employ to advance the kingdom of God in the earthly realm. And he gave them both the same strategy, both the same plan, And as they had lunch, as they discussed the download that they both received, they were amazed to see that God had them both on the same page. And so then they began to roll this out to the kingdom and try to get the rest of the kingdom on the same page. So basically, in a nutshell, let me just roll this out for you. The Lord showed them that there are seven mountains, seven areas that control the earthly realm. These are power centers, power spheres, You can call them whatever you want. Some people call them molders of culture. And so there could be more than seven, but this is the strategy that the Lord gave these two gentlemen. So why not go with that instead of reinventing the wheel? There's probably, there could be eight, there could be nine, there could be less. But these are the seven that they agreed on. And so I want to just walk through them. And then over the next two weeks, Pastor Tim and I will be talking about each one of these mountains uh, individually. But the first one, is the mountain of business, the business realm. Many of you in this room have a foot in the business realm. You know, we all think that we just belong in the religion mountain, and um, that's where we stay. But we all have other parts of our lives that we have other areas of influence. So 
The business realm is one of the areas that many of you in this room have an effect on. Number two, religion. That's one that we're all familiar with. That's why we're here today, to be on the religion mountain and to learn the principles and to develop a kingdom worldview. Number three, the government mountain. Some of you are called to that mountain, and we'll talk about that today, the influence that the government has on society. Number four, the family mountain. As you know, that's where we're formed. That's where so many of our beliefs come from, and the foundations of the family. That's where many of you got messed up in, right, your families. Um, you know, I make a living counseling people. What happens during counseling? Let's go back. Let's talk about your family. Let's see, you know, what happened there. What influence, what role did that play in your bringing up? So the family mountain is a very influential mountain. So as Christians, that's an area that we should have under control and be very mindful that that's how we can affect this society is through the family mountain. The education mountain, again, we're going to talk about that one today a little bit. But as you know, the education mountain, many of you here are teachers or educators, such an important role such an important part that you play in society. And it's high time we start respecting our teachers and our educators because they are the ones who are shaping the future for good or for bad, right? It can be argued either way, but I'm trusting you that are in this room are the ones that are affecting education for the good. Um, Then we have the Media Mountain. The Media Mountain, as you know, is pretty much in the limelight right now. Uh, They're covering themselves quite a bit, right? Because the media mountain has such influence. In fact, we've seen over the last couple elections the power that the media mountain has to shape elections and sway elections. And they're still fighting over who swayed the election more, right? And um, the media mountain has lost some of its influence from the standpoint that, um, you know, it's losing its credibility. It's losing its, its ability to be objective, And so we're seeing that with the whole fake news movement. And then last, arts and entertainment. Um, How important is that mountain? Because it has such an influence, (laughs) has such an influence on our society and our culture. And so it's high time that we gain control of these mountains once again, and we start calling the shots, and we start exercising the dominion that God has given to us, and we start imparting a worldview that we're meant to have. So those are the, the um, mountains. Someone up there, can you advance this one slide? It gets stuck on this one. Thank you. So we, we have to raise up and dominate each one of these mountains, and we're trying to win the world from our religion mountain, and it's been a fatal flaw in our strategy because we think we can stand on this religion mountain and control everything from that mountain, and quite frankly, that isn't working. You know, we can't affect change from just the religion mountain. Many of you are called to these other mountains, and that's where you exercise your influence and your authority. So it's a come ye versus a go ye strategy, because so many times we're telling the world, you have to come into the church to learn how to be churched and learn how to have a biblical worldview instead of what the, uh, the Great Commission commands us to go into the world. Go out there and impart that out in the worldly realm. And that's a far more effective strategy. It's a difference between the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom. They're, the, they're part in the same, but one has a greater focus than the other. As the last hundred years have progressed in Christianity and preaching, 
we've taken on the important role of helping people to understand the gospel of salvation. It's the number one thing that we hold on to. It's the number one thing that we trust in, is that we're guaranteed eternity through the salvation, through the cross. And so our number one message and our most important message is the gospel of salvation. But in emphasizing that, we've forgotten along the way the gospel of the kingdom. And so we have to begin to preach to the lost and dying world that we have a gospel that affects and permeates the entire kingdom. And when you look at Jesus' words, many times when he preached the gospel, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom as opposed to the gospel of salvation. Again, equally important. They're, they're very much important, but we have to remember that it has a greater scope. The gospel of the kingdom is the call to disciple nations. Amen? So we're told at the end of the age in Matthew 25 that there's going to be a separating of sheep nations versus goat nations. And so God speaks of this winnowing process where he will go through and and determine which nation is which. And he'll put one on one side and one on the other side, one bent for destruction and one bent for blessing. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we living in this day in a sheep nation or a goat nation? Ten years ago, I would have answered that question without hesitation. Of course, America is a sheep nation. But ten years later, I'm not so sure. When I begin to look at the policies and the directions that we are headed as a nation, the most Christianized nation in the world, and I have to stop and wonder, will we be considered a sheep nation or a goat nation? And that's very sobering when you think about it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of a goat nation on Judgment Day. I want to be part of a sheep nation. So I want to do whatever's in my power, whatever's in my ability, to begin to impart the principles to make us a sheep nation once again. So right now, it appears that we're losing on every one of these mountains. And I think part of the problem is we bought into the lie of separation of church and state. And I'm not going to go into the whole political ramblings of this uh, statement or whether or not it's in the Constitution or not. doesn't matter. The thing is, is the world does not define who we are as a church and who we are as Christians. We get to say who's, who's on top and who gets to define it because what's happened is it's no longer church and state being separated. I would suggest to you what has happened is that we become separated from society Because not only do they want church and state separate, they want church and society separate. So wherever we go as Christians, the minute we stand up and identify ourselves as Christians, what happens? We get relegated to the back. We get told, stay on your mountain. Get back in your corner. Your opinion doesn't matter here. You're in our domain. You're in our realm. Because obviously these other mountaintops are owned by the enemy. And so we need to take those things back and no longer be relegated to the back. Amen? So we need to take that stand. And so that's the cry of my heart. I no longer want to be one of the ones that is just pushed aside because you're on that church mountain. I'll tell you, whenever someone asks me what I do, I kind of cringe a little bit because the minute you say a pastor, they they just, uh, everything that gets put on you because you say you're a pastor, you know, dinosaur, you know, you you're so out of touch with society, uh, you know, you're not relevant anymore. And, and so those things are very hurtful, and they kind of 
water down your credibility and your authority. But if you can say, hey, I'm a captain of industry, you know, I'm a CEO of a company, that's all of a sudden that's where people tend to look at you with a lot more credibility. But I think we're going to turn that around, and I think a time is coming when the world's going to say, we need what they have, what the church has, we need. Amen? So I want to begin to impart those things. And so I think this strategy is one that will help us to win. Um, we tend to think of our lives in two compartments, secular versus sacred. And I remember when I first got saved as a Christian, and I've been in the automotive business most of my life, and I remember going to work, and as I was a newly saved, born-again Christian, and I was beginning to, to go back into that secular realm, I felt so conflicted because my managers and my leaders always wanted us to lie about timing of programs and things like that. And yet my Christian values told me, you know, you're not supposed to lie. You can't fudge the truth. And, uh, you know, so I was finding myself in more and more conflicts. And I remember talking to uh, a Christian man who helped disciple me, and he told me, he says, that's because every time you come here to work, you check your Christianity at the door. And that really hurt when he said that. But you know what? He was right. You know, I was living two lives. You know, I was doing the church thing like everybody else. But on Monday through Friday, I was doing the work thing. And I had to learn, you don't separate the two. You're a Christian 24-7, 365. Amen. And that changed everything. That's the cha- changed the way I viewed work. It's changed uh, everything that I thought. And, and it was such a challenge to me. But when I began to live that way, it made all the difference in the world. I think the reason why this Seven Mountain strategy hasn't worked up to this date is we can't agree on it. But if we could all agree, if churches everywhere could say, hey, let's just grab one strategy and let's stick to it, I guarantee you that we would be able to change the world. And I'm going to just show you in a minute that there's another group that's doing it, and it's working fantastic. But before I do, I just want to mention on my way here this morning, you know, you always wrestle with, do I have a word that's going to be relevant? Do I have a word that's going to be current? And as I was struggling with this word, I drove by St. Joan of Arc, the Catholic Church in my neighborhood, and as I'm going down Mac, they got one of those big digital signs, and this morning's word of inspiration said, God wants his church back. I'm, I'm sorry, God wants his world back. And I thought, wow, that was a message for uh, today. That's the message, amen? I thought that would be a perfect title for the sermon, God wants his world back. And so how do we get the world back for God? Right now, Islam is doing a great job. When you think about Islam, and as I was considering how they operate, I thought, how is it they're able to take the Middle East? How can they take Asia? How are they taking Europe? How are they taking Canada? And now they're coming after America, and they're doing a brilliant job. And what they're doing is they're doing basically this. They're following the Seven Mountain Strategy to the T. And let me just show you. Basically, they have a three-point strategy, and that's, Number one, to infiltrate. Number two, to assimilate. And number three, to dominate. So basically, they come into an area, they come into a region, they fly under the radar, and they come in and they infiltrate quietly, and they start to assess the situation. They identify who the leaders are, who are these mountain leaders, who's on top of each mountain. And as they begin to infiltrate, they're just in their intelligence-gathering phase. Number two, they assimilate. They begin to populate an area, and they start to blend in, and they start to slowly and gradually affect the culture. And number three, they tend to 
dominate. Once they have totally assimilated, then they begin to dominate. Once they have critical mass, they know they have enough power and authority to dominate a, a region. So how does that look? Basically, on the religion mountain, Islam will tell you we're not a religion, but we all know they are a religion. They pray, they have mosques, they have uh, services, and you know through all their religious talk, the Quran, um, so we can identify them on the religion mountain, even though they tend to say we're not, we're not a religion. And why they say we're not a religion is what they're saying is we're way more than a religion. We're just a religion. We're just Sunday go-to-meeting kind of people, right? They're not. Their everything is about Islam. The education mountain, you can see how they're gradually taking over our schools and our curriculum. In my neighborhood, all the school board members, not all, sorry, but a majority of them are becoming more and more uh, sensitive to Islam. And they're fighting for the rights for Islamic curriculum to come into our schools and starting to teach children um, the way of Islam right in our public schools. It's really amazing to watch how, again, infiltrating, assimilating, and then eventually dominating. Number two, the family mountain. We're being infiltrated and assimilated through population jihad. Pastor Tim and I did a series on Islam years ago, and one of the things that we were kind of surprised to discover is that the Islamic family uh, plan is to have at least 10 children per household because they're trying to get to critical mass through population jihad by having way more children who are indoctrinated into Islam than we do as Christians, who, by the way, our average homes are uh, 1.5 to 2 children per Christian couple. Number uh, three or four, the business mountain. If you read any of your bank statements, any of the fine print on all your banking literature, your credit cards, any of your loan contracts, you'll see that most banks are now Sharia compliant. They are changing their banking laws to be in agreement with all the Islamic principles in the banking system. Has anybody seen this? Is anybody paying attention to this? I guarantee you go home today and you pull out your statements, you'll see statements talking about that. Halal compliant. Many people are starting to see these markets pop up in their neighborhoods. Many restaurants are starting to label dishes that are halal compliant. And uh, again, it's dietary. So like I said, when Islam says we're not just religion, they're not kidding. They're infiltrating each one of these mountains, each one of these spheres. The media mountain, Al Jazeera, uh, many of you are familiar with that television uh, network, and all the Muslim reporters that are starting to show up on many of the even local stations. The government mountain, uh, we're seeing an increase of government officials, representatives, senators. Uh, Many of you know the one Senator Keith Ellison, I believe it is, from Wisconsin, swore in on the Koran when he became a senator. And from there, it just exploded. I googled the other day, How many Islamic or Muslim politicians are there? And I'll tell you, it's a ton. I remember when there was just one, and now there's a ton just getting into the political realm. And uh, many of you who live in the Detroit area all know the story of Hamtramck and how um, Islam has taken over the city government in Hamtramck. And that's a model for Dearborn. That's going to be a model for the state of Michigan. The government mountain, uh, okay, we just talked about that. 
um, from the standpoint that we've just, you know, recently found out that through the last administration at CARE, C-A-I-R, the Council on Arabic and Islamic Relations, and the Muslim Brotherhood are infiltrating key positions in government. Even some cabinet positions have been compromised because of these Islamic infiltrations into the government mountain. So can you see this war that's going on here? Can you see how this infiltration, assimilation, and eventually domination is starting to happen? And what are they doing? They're just using the strategy that the Lord gave to two of our Christian leaders, and we can't agree... Because if you Google it, people will say, it's demonic, it's of the devil, and stuff like that. It's not. It's a sound strategy. It's something that we need to be aware of, and it's working perfectly for the enemy's camp. So I just wanted to point that out to you. Number one, to submit to you that it can be done, it is being done, and how we can take this. And I have full confidence that the God we serve is a mighty God. The God we serve is able to do all things and do all things well. He's able to equip us and put us in those positions so that we secure these culture uh, influencers, these culture impactors. So um, with that, I want to just shift gears. And today I'm going to talk about the business, education, and government mountains real quick. And then Pastor Tim is going to talk to you next week about the religion, the family, the media, and the arts and education mountains. And uh, on Wednesday nights, we're going to make it real practical. So make sure you come here Wednesday because we want to talk about how you can impact the mountain that you have influence over. And so I know as I look in this room, some of you are teachers. Some of you are business people. Some of you may be in the government. Maybe some of you have media jobs. And so we have to understand that's our mountain. How do we impact that mountain? My experience, like I said, I was a GM for 25 years and outside engineering firms for another six. So I have 30 years of automotive experience. And so unwittingly, we were doing this already at GM before I even heard of this concept. Because one day as I was walking out to my car and morale at the company was at an all-time low, I was walking next to a guy and I spotted a book that he was carrying And we started a conversation because I had just read that same book, and we discovered we're Christians, and as we began to compare notes, we both said, there's got to be a better way, and maybe God is calling us to do something. And from that two-hour meeting in the parking lot, after we talked next to our cars for two hours, um, we decided to do something about it. We started Bible studies and prayer groups, and as we began to start those all over the campus of GM, these groups began to spring up. Many of them were already in existence. They just weren't known by other people. So we started a spreadsheet on the company intranet, intranet, I'm sorry. And then what we did is we, we started publishing this. So if you had to travel anywhere in the corporation, say for instance, you were going to Japan next week, you could go to our website and find out where the Bible studies were and where the prayer groups were. Amazing. So here we were, we were doing ministry and the company was paying for it. And so, I just want to give a word of warning, though. Don't be those Christians that just sit around work and just try to evangelize the workplace and do nothing. You are hired to do a job. And so you have to be a good witness on the job as well. You know, don't go in there and just laze around and just say, I'm, I'm here on a mission from God, so I have a pass. I don't have to do any work. A lot of people have that attitude. And that's one of the ones that soured me against some of the Christians I had worked with. But, you know, go there, do the best job, be a model employee, 
But in addition to that, on your lunch hours, we would get to work an hour early. We would be at work an hour early because we couldn't wait to get together. And we would meet in the cafeteria and share the word for the day and encourage each other. On our lunch hours, we're praying together, studying the word together. And after work, we would hang out and do things. It was just amazing because God was using us in a mighty way all over the corporation. And we got to know people because we were brothers and sisters in Christ. So we had an immediate bond wherever we went. From there, we would begin to pray over our contracts and our programs. And so the programs that the Christians were assigned to were some of the most successful launches in the company's history. These contracts, we'd bring them into the prayer room. They'd be this thick. We'd all gather around and lay hands on them. For some reason, our contracts were getting approved faster than anybody else's. The money was there for our projects, but nobody else's. And it was just the power of prayer we were getting coworkers healed that had terminal diseases and, and other issues. And how many of you know that a healthy workforce is a blessing to the employer? So we were being a blessing to our employer by, by getting the whole workforce healed up. So just amazing. Can you imagine how fun it was going to work? One of the quick stories I want to tell is, as, as Christians, one of the people in our prayer group was the vice president of communications, and we had a slight quandary from the standpoint that GM had bought Hughes Electronics, Hughes Aircraft, because we wanted the heads-up technology that allowed you to display the instrument panel metrics onto the windshield so you could tell uh, your speed and your RPMs and uh, data such as that, and it would be projected onto the windshield so you didn't have to look and take your eyes off the road. You could keep looking down the road and see all the metrics in front of you. And it's not that we couldn't invent that technology, but Hughes Electronics had a lock on it. They had the most bulletproof patent. So we ended up buying Hughes Aircraft so that we could have their patent. They bought it for one reason, to have that patent. And so once we got the patent, one of the unattended consequences of that purchase was we inadvertently owned DirecTV because Hughes invented DirecTV, satellite television, and through that, we realized that we were the number one purveyor of pornography. GM was the number one peddler of porn because of our ownership of DirecTV. Now, how many of you know that's a conflict? And so the vice president of communication says, we got a problem. We got to get out of this. And so the average bear says, sell DirecTV. What's your number one profit center? It's making the most money for the company. Guess what would happen if you sell that? The shareholders would be all over you. So how do you sell that and appease the shareholders? So God downloaded us a strategy, and that vice president of communication took it back to the executive board, and they implemented that strategy that God had divinely given us to get GM gracefully out of the pornography business without getting slimed. And so that was amazing that God did that. So I'm just saying, whatever your company is going through, God has a solution. God's got an answer for that issue, for that problem. Amen? So that's just putting your Christianity to work in that business mountain. Um, Gordon Pennington, he's a marketing genius. He's consulted by all the Fortune 500 companies, and he was the um, head of marketing for Tommy Hilfiger and many other fashion companies. And he said, give me five minutes in your child's room. You can put me in any child's room, and I'll go through his closet, his drawers. I'll look at the posters on his walls, and he says, in five minutes, I can tell you the five men or women who are 
personally responsible for all their taste and all their decisions. Because that's how small this realm is. Because they all know each other. They all work in concert with each other. And Gordon was a born-again Christian growing up, and he lost his, his Christianity during his college days and through his early executive days. And when he saw the evil plans that the enemy had to corrupt a generation, it brought him back to his senses. It brought him back to his Christian roots. And Gordon decided to start dedicating his life in the business mountain to advancing Christianity on that mountain. And he's doing a fantastic job, by the way. Google him sometime if you get a chance. Gordon Pennington, brilliant man, brilliant speaker. So with that, I just want to encourage you that your cubicle at work can become an embassy for God. I'll tell you, my cubicle, people were coming up to me all the time and talking, and I would get a chance to witness to them. I would get a chance to pastor them and minister to them. And it was just amazing because they were getting more church on a lunch hour at GM than they were, you know, a month of Sunday sometimes because the Spirit of God would be moving so powerfully. The next mountain I want to talk about real quick is the Education Mountain. The Education Mountain, you know, is a major mind molder. It's a major shaper of the culture. It controls the mindsets of future generations. In fact, this is what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. And boy, have we seen that come to pass. Amen? Just the shaping and the, the molding of the minds. I stumbled upon this two years ago. We were on vacation, and we are in Massachusetts. And first time, we really vacationed on the East Coast. And I had heard that the East Coast was somewhat liberal. and That's somewhat really liberal. And, uh, but anyways, um, my back was hurting really bad this one particular day, and it was a beautiful spring afternoon. So I told my wife, I said, go ahead, go shop for a couple hours. And I said, I'm going to just stay right here at this coffee shop, and I'm just going to, you know, pray, seek the Lord, read, read my Bible, um, and you go enjoy a couple hours of shopping because I couldn't just hang with her. My back just wouldn't cooperate. So as I was sitting there, turns out I didn't know it, but I was on the campus of Williams College. Has anybody heard of Williams College in Massachusetts? Okay, some of you have. It's the most liberal college in the U.S. for liberal arts, and um, it's a bastion of learning for many of the future politicians. And Williams was rated number one by U.S. News and World Report for the last 15 years as being known for their liberal leanings. And so I'm Googling this. I'm looking at this. I'm like, wow, I had no idea. That's where I'm sitting right now. And all of a sudden, I began to overhear some of these conversations that were going on around me. And I wasn't really trying to be nosy, but they were speaking loud enough that I couldn't ignore it. And... Uh, so I would hear, like, the first meeting would be two professors talking, and these professors would be comparing notes on some of the students. Hey, do you have so-and-so in your class? Oh, yes, I have her. Oh, isn't she wonderful? Yes, she's coming along very nicely. And they would start talking about their strategy and their agenda to convert these children, these impressionable youth, into the liberal agenda. And I was just horrified when I was listening. And then I'd hear professors meeting with students and some of the indoctrination that they were feeding them. It was just amazing to hear the strategies just unfolding right in front of me. And then I'd hear students talking about students 
comparing their professors and make sure you take this professor's class and this one's looking for help and stuff like that. And I was just like amazed when the enemy's plan was just exposed. It was just amazing when I saw how intentional and how deliberate that education mountain can be. And last, I want to talk real quick about the government mountain. And again, we're going to go deeper into this on Wednesday nights, just so you know. But uh, we need to have public servants that totally reflect our views. You know, we're supposed to have a representative form of government, and these officials are supposed to represent our voices. And I don't think they're doing a very good job right now. Many of them are just doing their own agenda, regardless of what the will of the people is. And I think it's time that we take this realm back, that we take this mountain back. In my lifetime, I've seen such a horrific slide of morality. Some of the issues that we've seen is... uh, like on the marriage front, on the LGBT front, um, you know, on the abortion front. And all these things are being legislated, and these attempts at legislating morality have been horrific. And so all those things are being controlled from that government mountain that we need to get back control of. This is a Newsweek article, The Decline and Fall of Christian America, which I don't think anybody can argue with that assessment. But its proverb says this, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Let's say that again. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And I don't know about you, but I've been groaning a lot lately. So um, we need to get this back on track, amen? We need to get back to a righteous nation. So what would happen if we began to mobilize? What would happen if we started to implement this divine strategy? What if each one of you in this room was able to take the time and seek God and pray, Lord, what mountain do you have me on? You know, so many of us are trying to get onto that religion mountain. And I know I was one of those guys. Here I was in the business realm, and all I wanted to do was get onto the religion mountain. I wanted to become part of the church. I thought I had to be a full-time minister to do the ministry. But I didn't realize that when I was in the business world, I was a full-time minister. I was an ambassador of Christ. I was a minister of God in the workplace. And so many of us are pining away to do something else, and we're neglecting the very calling, the very place that God has you in right now. So find that assignment, and then take control of where you're planted. And one of the things that I've imparted uh, lately a couple times to you is the concept of the microchurch. The microchurch are where two or believers are on assignment, where two or more believers are on assignment. Wherever you go, just look for one other believer. That's all you need is two or more. And as you begin to discover that, that one fateful day in the parking lot of GM, and I ran into a man named Bruce, and we began to talk, that minute that we started talking, a microchurch was born in that place. And we started operating as the pastors, the prophets, and the kings, and the rulers in that business realm, in that particular business unit, because we are on a mission from God, and we understood our assignment, and we were faithful to do what God was calling us to do on that mountain. And so we're impacting those mountains with the teachings of Jesus Christ on each and every mountain. So as a church, we should have the best politicians. We should have the best teachers, the best scientists, the best artists, the best journalists. We should be raising up a crop of people who are undisputed leaders in their field. And so I'm looking forward to that day when we see these mountaintops recaptured and reclaimed for the Lord 
Amen? So I'm tired of copying the world. And I'll tell you, I salute businesses like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. I know they've become a laughing stock. Amen? I know they've become a laughing stock, and, and the world is trying to neutralize them and trying to shut them up. But these business leaders are saying, I'd rather not be in business than play by your rules. And I'm going to start changing the rules, and I'm going to start saying, you guys need to play by our rules. And I admire leaders like that. Amen. That's true leadership. Amen. So it's high time, church. I don't know about you, but it's high time we took back this ground and this land for the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. So, Lord, I thank you for these leaders, for these kingdom leaders in this room. Lord, as I look out, I see business leaders. I see government leaders. I see leaders in the media and the arts. Lord, I see family leaders. Lord, I pray for each and every one of these, for the teachers that are on the education mountain. Lord, I ask that you would just reveal to them their assignment, their call. Lord, would you reveal to them the others that have the same heart and the same assignment so that they would begin to start microchurches on the very mountain that they're called to occupy. And Lord, that we would see the church of Jesus Christ stand up victorious. Lord, that we would take back this world and dominate it as you called us to do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.